This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I will have the privilege of hosting Sir Noel Malcolm, a senior research fellow at All Souls College, University of Oxford. We will be discussing his captivating new book, Useful Enemies, Islam and the Ottoman Empire in Western Political Thought, 1450 to 1750, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. This beautifully argued, erudite monograph tells the story of Western Europeans' fascination with the Ottoman Empire and Islam between the fall of Constantinople in 1453 and the middle of the 18th century. It carefully traces a textured, contingent encounter between two civilizational complexes and exposes the dynamic role that the Ottomans played in intra-European political and cultural struggles. Sir Noel, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for those very kind words about the book. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking about the book's genesis. How had your previous research led you to write Useful Enemies? Our listeners would recognize you as one of the foremost scholars of Thomas Hobbes. How did you come to focus on the visions of the Ottoman Empire in Western political thought? Well, this is quite a long story. Um, and by the time I sat down to write this book uh, a couple of years ago, I had probably been doing research on this on and off in the intervals between other projects for maybe <clears throat> 25 years. So it goes back a long way. You're right that I'm, I suppose, primarily uh, a historian of philosophy with a special interest in Thomas Hobbes, the, the great uh, 17th century political thinker, that's what he's best known for. But like many great thinkers in that period, he was a, a sort of a man of universal interests. And over the years, I've worked on many aspects of his work uh, in areas including optics, history of mathematics, biblical criticism, whole range of things. So not just political thought. But if you work on Hobbes, you have to think a lot about political thought, because that's what he's most famous for, the, the, the founder in some ways of <clears throat> modern doctrines of sovereignty, of sovereign states, of interstate relations, uh, of a theory, a complex theory of authorization by the people of their ruler. I mean, he is an endlessly fascinating political thinker. And so also in my, um, well, from my student years, I did my doctorate on Hobbes, <clears throat> but thereafter as an academic, I was teaching much more generally, history of political thought. 
So that gives you part of the background to this book, because this book is not a, a, a total survey of Western sort of cultural interactions with the Islamic or Ottoman world. It's, it's specifically focused on Western political thinking in a broad sense. <clears throat> that gives you part of the background. But the other aspect is um, a, a rather separate stream of my uh, research interests over the years in the history of uh, the Balkans, of Southeast Europe. Um, I've sometimes read sort of strange comments in reviews or uh, articles about my work saying very confidently, oh, he got interested in the former Yugoslavia because of his interest in Hobbes, because Hobbes talks about a state of nature, which is a war of all against all and people just killing each other. I mean, that is absurd. That is not why I got interested uh, in the Balkans. It's itself a long story, but when I was a student, I started just going to that part of Europe out of interest. Um, I started learning the languages of those countries, which made it much more interesting to travel. And uh, I like mountain walking. I would stay in mountain villages. You need to speak the language to, to travel like that. But gradually that gave me a range of sort of interests that I could follow up in libraries in the history and culture of Romania, the former Yugoslav lands, um, modern Greece, <clears throat> Albania, and so on. And in the early 1990s, when Yugoslavia descended into war, uh, I did uh, become more active as a commentator on that. And then because so many of those political disputes were invoking history and often instrumentalizing history in, in really very false ways, uh, I ended up writing historical books for the general reader. I wrote one on Bosnia, I wrote one on Kosovo. And I had other sort of, uh, what can I call them, more academic interests, which I, led me into other corners of Balkan history. <clears throat> now, Balkan history for a very long period, nearly half a millennium, is Ottoman history. And I became fascinated by the Ottoman Empire. Um, <clears throat> Western writing about the history of the Ottomans has always depended probably too much on source material generated by Western uh, travelers, diplomats, and so on. This is not surprising because reading the original sources in Ottoman Turkish is extremely difficult. And I do not pretend to be a proper Ottomanist. I have a basic knowledge of modern Turkish, but I've never gone into those archives. But anyway, my interest in Ottoman history on the one hand, and my interest in the history of political thought on the other, became, so to speak, two pillars in lines of work that I was doing, where finally I reached a point where I felt there was a natural bridge that I could build between them. And this book essentially is that bridge. It's about the Ottoman world and the Islamic world, as Western Europeans experienced it, in the minds and writings of people in the whole of Western Europe from, as you say, the mid-15th to the mid-18th century. A fascinating, exhaustive um, introduction. The fall of Constantinople to forces of Mehmed II sets the stage for your narrative. How did Western political actors and thinkers make sense of this global historical event? How did they incorporate the Ottoman Turks into existing cultural intellectual models? Well, that is a, a big question, and <clears throat> I don't think there's a, a single neat answer to be given, but I'll try to give a shorter one than the one I just gave. Um, I mean, mid-15th century Western Europe was quite divided anyway. Well, Europe, Western Europe was divided for, in various ways for the whole period I'm discussing here. Um, they had some sense of a common identity insofar as they came under threat. But generally, these were small kingdoms and city-states and uh, other entities that were rivals. They were commercial rivals, political rivals, engaged in land grabs against one another. So although the last emperor of Constantinople, of the Byzantine Empire, pleaded with his fellow Christians in the West for help, the response up to the fall of Constantinople had been, frankly, feeble. Very little help was sent. 
And because of the religious difference within Christianity, the Byzantines were of the Eastern Church, uh, Western Europe, obviously the Latin or Roman Church, and they'd had a great argument about whether they could reconcile these two. There was also some positive hostility towards the Byzantine Greeks in Western Europe. So the immediate reaction was one probably of a rather guilty conscience that they had stood by and not helped when this symbolically important bastion of Christianity had fallen to the Turks. But then <clears throat> it, was, it wasn't that collapse of a, of, a, of a Christian city in itself that made this such a big event in their minds. Because let's face it, the Byzantine Empire by then had dwindled to a little patch of land around the city and a bit of Greece that hardly answered to Constantinople. So that was pretty much symbolic. What mattered was the feeling, my God, the Turks are coming. <laughs> if they've got this city at last, and they'd already got large parts of the Balkans, then surely they're going to continue to move west. They don't have to worry about a, 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 an enemy pocket to their rear. And moving west now will bring them into our territories. So it was essentially a defensive feeling, but it was very difficult to marshal that defensive feeling into unified action. And although the popes of the time kept calling for crusades and for unifying all the Christian Roman Catholic states under their leadership, the actual response was very poor. And then, of course, in this period, because everybody at a deep level is thinking in religious and theological terms, they had to make sense of this in a, a sort of pattern of sacred history. And there were different ways of looking at this. One, the easy way was to say, oh, well, this was God's punishment for those Greeks because they didn't agree to submit to the Pope and, in effect, join the Roman Church. But there were other arguments based on readings of um, prophecies in the Bible, or the book of Revelation, which suggested we might be entering into the sort of end of the world scenario. And that was much more worrying. But that didn't necessarily mean that that spurred people to greater efforts against the Turks. It could almost have the opposite effect of saying, well, this is God's plan. And who can fight against God? Wonderful. And you move on to describe how the image of the Ottoman Turk was used by the opposing sides in Western Christianity's grand ruptures of the 16th century. Would you perhaps care to elaborate on the contemporary uses of such terms as Calvino-Turkism and uh, Turco-Papalism? Yes, well, these are products of the fierce debates between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th century. And <clears throat> the terms you just quoted emerged towards the end of that century, but of course the Reformation starts in 1517. Uh, Luther is writing fiery polemics, which include strong arguments on the subject of the Turkish threat uh, from, from very soon after the, um, <clears throat> that starting point in 1517. And so there are Catholic, Protestant, two-way polemics running pretty much all the way through that century. Now, some of this is sparked by the rather extreme line that Luther took at the beginning, where he said it wasn't so much that this is God's plan and we should not resist it, although that was part of his, his sort of rhetoric on this subject, but it was, um, it, we have to reform ourselves. The true reformation is a moral and spiritual one of ourselves, and that's what we should, the, the, the real war we should be fighting is an internal spiritual one. And these other things are external. He was particularly uh, enraged by the idea that the Pope could use his authority to sort of marshal the states of Western Europe to oppose the Turk. And he said, no, um, religion and politics are completely separate worlds. Um, and if, if a ruler whose territory is attacked wants to defend his territory, well, that's just a secular thing. But we as Christians have no duty to take part in that as Christians. Uh, it, 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 these are just operating on different levels. Now, this was interpreted as an astonishing uh, declaration of uh, sort of defeatism towards uh, the Turks. I should stop calling them Turks at this stage and really call them Ottomans because 
Um, they were not what we would call Turks today, just the sort of ethnic linguistic people from what we call Turkey. They were a, a whole sort of melange drawn together out of their subject peoples. But anyway, this was seen as defeatist towards the Ottomans and scandalous, and therefore a rather easy point on which to attack the Protestants. So from an early stage, you have Catholics attacking uh, particularly the Lutherans. But equally, part of Luther's rhetoric, and this goes on into a larger sort of set of arguments used by Protestants, was that the Catholics were strangely like Muslims or like the Ottomans themselves. Now, that may seem a ridiculous proposition, but their argument was, well, it's a religion of works, not of faith. Um, Muslims, you know, have all these pious duties that they do, their washing and their rituals of prayer and so on. And these are externals of religion. That's just like the Catholics, whereas we renew the spirit as, as true Protestants. And they made all sorts of other comparisons that you had dervishes, these sort of Sufi spiritual orders in Islam. And look, we have Franciscans and Dominicans and Jesuits in, um, in, in, in the Roman church. And so a game got going where each side started to try to find often really spurious connections between Islam and the other side. And so the attack on the Protestants would say, oh, well, they destroy images. That's what the Muslims do because they think it's, it's um, idolatrous to have images in your, in your place of worship. Uh, and so on. So th these arguments continued all through the 16th century. And then towards the end of the century, you get an extra political twist to this, which is mm -hmm. that some of the Calvinist movements, uh, for example, the revolt against Spanish rule in, in the Netherlands, some of these uh, were now in a sort of geopolitical position where, in effect, they were potential allies of the Ottoman state because the big enemy of the Spanish Habsburgs was the Ottomans. And so if you revolt against the Spanish, you rather hope that the Ottomans might help you, at least somewhere else in Europe. And there were other places in um, part of Hungary, for example, where there was direct collaboration between Calvinists and Ottomans. So this term was, was developed with a, a sort of political meaning as well as a theological one. Um, Turco-Calvinism or Calvino-Turkism. And then in response to that, the Protestants talked about um, Turco-Papalism. Um, and it, it's just astonishing. I, I, I give some quotations in my book from a work by a learned English Catholic theologian. He wrote a book about this, attacking Protestantism and making all these comparisons with Islam. Now, you and I might if we were asked to do this as a mental exercise, sit down and write on one piece of paper, what connections can you make? Know all that thing about images, um, and you know, and it, there are not a lot of obvious connections, but they thought also the role of um, Protestant rulers in having more direct control of the church was more like the sultan controlling Islam. and So, so you or I might fill half a page with these connections. This learned English Catholic theologian filled a book of more than 700 pages, a folio book, a really large book in small type in Latin. And he doesn't digress. There's not a lot of padding in that book. He manages to fill out the argument for uh, you know, a colossal number of words. So they really took these arguments seriously. And then in the longer term, the idea, the connection with Calvinism got into the historical literature, got into people's minds, whereas Turco-Papalism didn't make it. Um, and that's just the way the way things fall out. And again, that's more a matter of politics a little further down the line. Excellent segue into my next question. You convincingly contend that the growing political and diplomatic ties between European monarchies, most notably France or Francois I and the Ottomans, led to a positive revaluation of Islamic political practice in Western thought. Could you please describe how this new paradigm took shape in the mid-1500s? How was this Muslim polity integrated into European diplomatic and cultural networks in an era during which religious considerations strongly underpinned political ones? Yes, I think there are, there are two essential things here. They're different, but they're closely connected. One is the actual links that developed and sort of convergence of interests 
above all between France and the Ottoman Empire. And the other is the development of what I call this new paradigm, a whole new sort of systematic way of thinking about the Ottoman state and society and the way it functioned. And the connection is that that new paradigm was developed primarily by French writers and on the basis of um, uh, information brought back by French scholars, diplomats, travelers, who'd benefited from that special uh, special connection with the Ottoman Empire. So to start with the first of those, as you say, it was the French king Francois uh, I um, in from the 1520s onwards who developed really a, a, quite a strong alliance with the Ottoman Sultan, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. Now you have to just think of the map of, of, of Western Europe at this time. You've got France, a big uh, independent kingdom, to the west of it, you've got Spain, a big, powerful kingdom. And to the right of it, you've got the Holy Roman Empire, which translates approximately in as Germany, uh, but with Austria added on. And these are all Habsburg territories. And for a significant part of this time, they're ruled by the same man, the Emperor Charles V. Uh, towards the end of his life, he divides them, and then you have Spanish Habsburgs and Austrian Habsburgs. But just think of the position of France. It is sandwiched between two very powerful, hostile Habsburg entities. And it's the basic political maxim, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So Francois realized he had to get his enemy's enemy, and the biggest enemy that the Habsburgs had, both in Spain, but even more so in Germany and the Central European lands, the biggest enemy was the Ottoman Sultan. So he makes this alliance, and of course it scandalizes the rest of Europe when they find out about it. He tries to manage things secretly, but there are some things you can't be very secret about, including inviting a, an Ottoman war fleet of a hundred ships to spend a whole winter in the southern French port of Toulon, uh, and then joining in a, with them in an attack on a neighboring territory in a joint French-Ottoman campaign. I mean, this is just extraordinary. So that's the the, 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 the key connection. That's the strongest one. It's not the only connection because even before that and continuing after that, there are moments when some of the smaller Italian states have been in de facto alliances with the Ottomans. But this French connection is the biggest and most prominent. And as I say, um, because it's more sort of formalized and it involves diplomatic relations, you get a lot of French uh, scholars, you get some of the diplomats themselves writing things. And they have good access to the Ottoman Empire, and they are observant. These are not the only writings that helped create what I call the new paradigm, because there are also other texts by people who'd been captives or slaves inside the Ottoman Empire who got out and wrote about it. Now, they have nothing generally uh, good to say about the Ottoman Empire in terms of their overall approach, but equally they describe things how they, how they saw them. And the building blocks emerge from these texts in the sort of 15, particularly 1540s, 50s, the building blocks of a whole new way of seeing this system of government and society. And it's got a range of features and somehow they sort of come together in a pattern. So one is order and discipline. Uh, they knew a lot already about the the extraordinary discipline of the Ottoman army, which impressed all the Western armies that fought against it. It was much more uh, disciplined in every way. Better logistics too, better organized in, in, in broader senses. But public order in the streets, you could walk around at night in a town in, in the Ottoman Empire and feel safe. Uh, you didn't have to go armed. For people coming from Western Europe, this was really extraordinary because, I mean, think of it, Police forces, as we know them, are a very modern invention. They had nothing like that. So there was public order. There was um, surprisingly impressive justice. Uh, the justice system impressed people above all because it was rapid. And um, if you read the novels of writers of Western Europe at this time, you know, someone like Rabelais, endless jokes about lawyers and how they spin things out for years and decades. There was speedy and sort of basic, but apparently sensible and reasonably, reasonably unbiased uh, justice uh, meted out by judges in the Ottoman system. And then lots of other things that impressed them. Um, you had a spirit of philanthropy. 
where um, individuals would pay for um, soup kitchens for the poor and for hospitals. Uh, people would set up pious foundations to pay for f water fountains in the cities and so on. Anyway, there's a whole range of these things. And you add to that the obvious fact that Christianity was tolerated and Judaism were tolerated in the Ottoman Empire. They had a lower status, they had some disabilities, but still they were tolerated. And this at a time when religious conflict in Western Europe is um, raging and in some places people are being massacred because they're the wrong type of Christian. This really impressed people. And I'll just add one other thing which is important. Um, to use a modern term, meritocracy. They were really impressed by the fact that here was a well-functioning system of government and society that did not depend on hereditary nobility. It just, I mean, in some sort of loose sense, somewhere out in, in, the, some, in, in some of the provinces, de facto you had a bit of that, but this was not what the system depended on. It depended on promotion on merit. And you could start absolutely at the bottom. In fact, you did start at the bottom because a lot of the people who became the administrators were brought in in the so-called um, collection of slave boys and turned into um, public servants or janissaries. But the meritocracy amazed them. And how could you, you know, if you came from aristocratic France or England or uh, Austria or Spain or, 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 or Italy, you thought, how is it possible to set up a, an imperial power that functioned so well without nobles. And that would really set you thinking about your own society. So the, all these things came together into a new pattern. And I think it really comes together, particularly in the writings of uh, the great French political theorist of the late 16th century, Jean Baudin. Uh, and he's obsessed with the Ottoman Empire. He's very interested in Islam too. And he brings these things together. And his book, uh, The Six Books of the Republic, is the most widely read political treatise of the last quarter of the 16th century. So what I've called this new paradigm, it really gets spread around the whole of Europe, um, partly as a result of his writing. So Noel, you forcefully reveal the fact that early modern Western Europeans saw the Ottoman Empire not only as an opponent on the battlefield, but also as an intellectual resource. Um, as already mentioned in the course of our conversation. Nowhere is this clearer than in the cases of Niccolo Machiavelli and Tommaso Campanella, perhaps. Would you briefly describe how these canonical Western European thinkers mobilized narratives of Ottoman statecraft as tools in their own deliberations on what we would now call raison d'etat? Yes, well, Machiavelli, the great Florentine political theorist of the first couple of decades of the 16th century, is a key figure in this story, although he doesn't write a great deal of directly about the Ottomans. Uh, there's a very interesting chapter in his most famous treatise, uh, the, the Prince, where he compares the Kingdom of France with its nobles who are often creating civil wars and collaborating with invaders and so on. He compares that with the Ottoman Empire, which doesn't have such people, and he gives a quite a shrewd assessment of the, the relative advantages and disadvantages of these. But what Machiavelli does that really feeds into this later tradition of what became known as reason of state theory is that he thinks in a very penetrating way about the social and political role of religion. Now, a lot of his work is based on a study of Roman history. Uh, his much bigger book is Discourses on the Roman Historian Livy. And he's fascinated by the way religion worked politically in ancient Rome as a kind of tool of control from above, um, but something that can have very positive effects, not just on public order, but also on the motivation of soldiers, if their priests have told them that they're a good omens for the battle that's coming up and so on. And he, so he creates, in the way he writes about these things, he creates a kind of template which the next generation of writers, equipped with more information, thanks partly to these French people and others, you know, writing books in the middle of the century, 
the template is there for people to think a lot more about Islam and how it is part of the strength of the Ottoman system. And so in the later part of the 16th century, when you get hardline Catholics uh, who are partly in this Machiavellian tradition because they're also concerned with the influence of religion on the state, but in another sense they're tremendously anti-Machiavellian because they don't like his implications that pagan religions might do this just as well. They want to prove that Christianity is the only religion that will have all the benefits for state power and state order and so on. So you get a strange engagement with this issue. And of course, they have to think about, about um, Islam and the Ottoman Empire too. And some of them, uh, this is one of the points I've tried to make, and I don't know if you have a question coming up on this. If so, I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll hold it over. Some of them really create what we now call the whole theory of, of Ottoman despotism or Oriental despotism. Mm -hmm. But that's a slightly different issue. You asked me about Machiavelli to Campanella, so I'll come back to the religious story and Campanella. Now, Campanella is an extraordinary figure. Um, this is at the end of the um, uh, 16th century uh, and the beginning of the 17th. Um, he's a Dominican friar intellectually very adventurous. He gets in trouble with the authorities in the 1590s. He's tried and sort of given a warning about heresy, which means once you've been warned, if you're convicted again, you, you, know, you can be handed over to the secular power to be executed. Um, and he's got very strong religious and political views, which on the face of it are tremendously pro-Habsburg. He's in southern Italy, which then was under the rule of the Spanish Habsburgs. Um, and so you would think, well, he would at least on the political front be a great supporter of, uh, the, the, of Spanish Catholic rule. But the extraordinary thing is that later in the 1590s, he takes part in, in fact, I think he's the key organizer of, an anti-Habsburg revolt, which was meant to rise up and collaborate with an Ottoman fleet, leading to the Ottoman conquest of Italy. And this is just completely extraordinary. And I've tried to piece together the thinking behind this. And to be honest, for me, it was the most sort of interesting and surprising element in all the research I did for this book. Um, because he was arrested. The, the revolt failed very quickly. The Ottomans never landed. It, it fizzled out very quickly. He was arrested. And then, of course, he was tried again for heresy. And he could have been executed that, but he pretended to be mad while being tortured for many, many hours nonstop. And since they couldn't get a confession out of him, they just left him to rot in jail for 20, 20, another 25 years. And one of the first things he did in jail was to write a little book called The City of the Sun, which is the most famous thing he wrote. It's quite short, and it's a sort of utopia describing a wonderful city and state in some distant land. And this is the work that so many people have looked at and tried to understand. And... Well, I don't want to boast, but I think I've cracked it. I think I've understood it in a way that nobody else has. And what he's describing there is actually full of hints involving Islam and the Ottoman Empire. And a lot of that new paradigm that I mentioned is built into his model utopian state. And it's not a Christian state, and it's not specifically a Muslim state, but it's in a funny way a sort of mixture of the two. It's a kind of halfway house, and it's a, a sort of worldly utopia. And what I think he was doing in his revolt was preparing for the end of the world. And I mentioned this a little earlier on, that everyone in the background had theological religious assumptions. And of course, prophecies in the Bible, book of Revelation, they cared deeply about the significance of this. And he thought the end of the world was coming. There were prophecies that said the Ottomans would conquer Italy or perhaps conquer half of Europe. But then in the great turning point in the story, their leader would be converted to Christianity, and then they, they would help to bring about the end days when all the nations are converted to Christianity and they gather in Jerusalem and the heavens open and so on. But his great plan was that in order to get the, the Ottomans, these Muslims, into this sacred history, doing the right things, he needed to create a kind of halfway house ideal society that would incorporate enough of Islam that they would recognize that this was, this was all incorporating their values. 
a halfway house that would sort of lead them on somehow to Christianity. And I think that's what he was describing in the City of, of the Sun. So although, I mean, all my friends of a, above a certain age from former communist countries, uh, they all know this text by Campanella because it was taught in all the schools in places like Russia. It was depicted in their textbooks as proto-socialist, proto-communist, totally secular, um, new ideology. They have no idea how different it is from that. I mean, it's one of the most bizarre but fascinating expressions of a deeply, deeply religious mentality. But at the same time, it incorporates a lot of that new information and interpretation that the so-called new paradigm embodied. A splendid piece of historical analysis. Thank you. And indeed, I do have a question about despotism, which features rather prominently in the latter part of the book. Despite such creative, transformative uses of the Ottoman system in European thought, you write that the underlying assumption of the great majority of early modern writers in Western Europe was that Ottoman rule was based on oppression. The idea that the rule of the Sultan was inherently despotic, uh, had a long career, and survived deep into the 20th century. Could you tell our listeners something about the origins of this despotism discourse and explain how it evolved from Machiavelli's to Montesquieu's times? I know this is a, a rather big, big time frame. Well, it is a big time frame, and it's, as you say, quite a large subject in the book. And I'm conscious of the fact that I have not been giving you short answers so far, and this one will not be short either. But it is, I think, a really fascinating um, theme that runs through these centuries. So we start with the question, why do you need this category of despotism? Because traditionally, theory said, well, you have monarchy, uh, and they all wrote treatises saying how good monarchy was and how, how a good king would rule. And then if that goes wrong, you have tyranny. And tyranny is evil monarchy, exploitative for the king's own interest, not for the good of the people and so on. And that seems to exhaust it. That's positive and negative. Whereas despotism is a third category. And um, what's interesting is the way that it was brought into the debate. It's revived from ultimately from Aristotle, uh, where in his politics, where he talks about these things. And he talks about... Um, monarchy and tyranny and then he says but there's another kind of rule which you find in barbarian kingdoms in Asia it's not tyranny because it's not against the law it's legal rule, it's hereditary rule it's accepted by the people and the ruler although the ruler rules essentially for his own interest but actually he's sort of paternalistic towards the people, and it's in their interest too that they be ruled by such a person. And Aristotle's explanation of this is, oh, these Asiatic people are natural slaves. They're not capable of full development as political human beings with, with self-government, which of course ultimately what Aristotle would be more interested in. So, despotism, the word comes from a Greek word for the master of a household that has slaves in it. So he's master of his wife and children, but he's also master of slaves. Despotism implied a kind of political rule that was accepted. It wasn't just some tyrant or usurper. It was accepted, and in some way it did benefit the ruled, but it involved putting those ruled people into the position of something like slaves. How does this get applied to the Ottoman Empire? Really, it's thanks to Ottoman Habsburg warfare in the 19... Sorry, in the 15... 20s and 1530s, when you have propagandists for the Habsburgs who are not experts on the Ottoman world, and they're, they're sort of humanist scholars sitting in their studies, they've never been anywhere near the Ottoman world, and they're just writing pamphlets. And they say that, oh, we've got to fight these people and defend our territories, because if you fall under the Ottoman Sultan's power, you become his slave, and everybody who lives in that society is just a slave. You have no property rights, you have no legal rights, and so on. Now, they can say this in the 1520s and 30s because the public doesn't know a lot about conditions there. As I say, that big wave of new information comes just a decade or two later. But even so, it's, it's quite wild rhetoric at that time. It gets into 
the writings of one or two specialists who start picking up on this Aristotle term, despot, despotism. Uh, well, they don't say despotism, but they talk about despotic rule. But there it sits in the literature, and it's not become the dominant interpretation. What happens is that at the end of the 16th century, those Catholic writers in the Machiavellian tradition that I was talking about, who are sort of ultra-Catholic, they have a problem. They want to energize Western Catholics and people generally to fight against the Ottomans. Their problem now is that this new paradigm has been established in the middle of the century, and there's a lot of work, including that huge treatise by Jean Baudin, saying, well, this is actually a very stable system of rule. Christians can live there happily, they're tolerated, they can get on with their lives. In some ways, it may be better than living in, in Western Europe. This is a big problem for them. Now, what can they do about this? They can't just say, oh, all that new paradigm information is wrong, because there's a great body of literature now, descriptions in detail of how life works. They can't just deny that. So what they do in a very clever move is that they take every element of that and they turn it upside down. They turn the valuation from positive to negative. So, for example, that meritocracy point, they say, oh, you know, you may say this is good that people rise from merit, but actually the key point here is that the Ottomans crush nobles and anyone of distinction and they reduce everyone to the same level in the dirt. And that's what you're really talking about. And uh, the public order that impressed people, so you could walk the streets at night, they said, ah, this is a sign of total terror. No, people don't walk around with, with weapons and so on because they'll have their heads cut off if they're caught with a, something that's against the law. But this is a sign that, that this is a state built on terror. And so point by point, they go through these features and they turn them upside down. I mean, they keep the information the same, but the interpretation becomes strongly negative. And... The key thing about what I call the new paradigm is that it forms a kind of system. It's systematic. It's not just some odd little things they notice here and there. It comes together in Western interpretations as a system. And what despotism becomes, and this is where it really kicks in as an ism, is it's also a system. But it's the neg negativization of that positive system. And this is a very clever intellectual maneuver carried out in the sort of 1580s, 1590s, and suddenly it creates a satisfying theory that explains everything and keeps it all negative. So that's, I think, uh, I'm, I'm giving a, a, an account here which I, I think has not been properly worked out before. I think that is the real development of the theory of oriental despotism. The strange thing is that it really doesn't last, at least not in that form, because the system the more descriptions that come out, and now we're moving into the next century, the 17th century, the more descriptions that come out now from travelers and diplomats and so on, the more people realize that a lot of this marvelous machinery is breaking down. And, um, you know, the sultans are sometimes at the mercy of their corps of soldiers who can riot and make demands and have them cut off the grand vizier's head, or on one famous occasion, actually execute the sultan themselves. And there are various other things that people notice, the corruption, the sale of offices, so that meritocracy point is being eroded all the time. The, the Ottoman state is desperate for money and it's, it's selling, selling offices as all Western states did in this period. And so within a generation, the idea of despotism as a, a negative but efficient system is already beginning to crumble. And through the 17th century, increasingly, people talk about despotism in a way that is not just negative in valuation, but it's, it's, it's sort of negative in, in practical terms. This machinery is partly broken machinery, and that adds to the suffering of the people who wants to live in a very corrupt society, and so on. And that takes you through the 17th century and up to um, the debates in the early 18th century, particularly in France. Uh, you asked me to carry this through to Montesquieu. That I realise I've been talking a long time now, but would you like me just to carry on to, to take in Montesquieu now? Yes, please. Okay, well, the debates in France, these are significant in some sense because of one individual, and that is King Louis XIV, the great absolute monarch of France who extends his power and uh, reigns for an extraordinarily long time in the late... Uh, in, well, second half of the 17th century and, and into the 18th. And um, 
is one of the things he's doing is concentrating power in his hands. He builds the great palace of Versailles, gathers the hereditary nobility in to keep them under his control. Uh, there's enormous centralization going on there. And the reduction in real power of the hereditary nobility is deeply troubling to a lot of people in France at that time. And so these arguments are both domestic arguments and arguments about the Ottomans. But in some ways, the motive is domestic. You know, the argument is you're making France more like the Ottoman state. Having strong, fairly independent nobles is an essential feature of the French constitution. And if you weaken that beyond a certain point, you end up with a, a king of France who is himself a despot. So this is why despotism is an active term in French debate in the early 18th century in particular. And one of the people who's absorbed all of this and is strongly on that pro-nobility side of the argument is Montesquieu, uh, one of the most important French um, philosophers and political thinkers of the 18th century. And over many years, um, from the, say, 1710s or 20s to the 1740s, he is thinking about these things, but he's engaged in a much larger project, which is to construct a kind of political science that will account for all governmental systems and social systems anywhere in the world. And this is, involves a, a great research project. He has to read all the things he can find about every kingdom in the world and uh, books by missionaries and travelers and explorers and so on. And he tries to synthesize these and eventually he ends up producing this great um, treatise de l'Esprit des Lois, The Spirit of the Laws, um, 1748. And in this he says, well, there are three essential forms of state, monarchy, republic, and despotism. Republic means a non-monarchical constitutional state. Monarchy means a constitutional monarchy. So those two have a sort of have constitutional norms built into them. Despotism is the outlier of the three because that's the one that's built on pure power and pure will. And he constructs an elaborate system to explain all this in terms partly of climate, in hot countries, people behave differently and it's more suitable to subject them to arbitrary will, whereas we who live in France could never be treated like that because the climate doesn't permit it. And he, he puts in all kinds of factors. It's a heavily overdetermined argument and this has given endless um, work for historians and, and interpreters to do over the years to try to work out what he's really basing his argument on. But one thing is clear, that despotism is from the ultimate negative. But as he develops his theory, he does say something very interesting, which it's not that he's reviving any aspect of the new paradigm, but he recognizes there is some sort of system there that is keeping despotism going. If it was total individual will and terror, obviously it would fall apart. Uh, you can't run a state over time on that basis. And he realizes that if you can talk about total will and absolute power, you have to bring in some other factors that are restraining that. And so he, what I say in the book, it's a sort of little way of, 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 sort of summarizing this. In a sense, he breaks it down into two things. There's the despot, he breaks despotism into two things. There's the despot and there's the ism. And the despot is this pure negativity, um, lust for power and, and, and just um, everything by, by whim with no logic or reason to it. But the ism part is the other factors that, in a sense, work against that. But because they control it, they actually keep despotism going as a functioning system. So it's a very complex and interesting theory that he develops. And he's extended the previous concepts of despotism quite a long way. Um, and he's developed a whole structure of argument that goes deeper. So in a sense, this is the, the culmination of a long Western history of talking about despotism. But as I try to show in my final chapter, I mean, he really overdoes it. He becomes quite an easy target for critics. And although some people carry on theorizing about Oriental despotism into the 19th century, as a central concept in Western thought, it sort of falls away because he just went too far. Wonderful. And I would like to end this wonderful interview where you end the book 
Edward Said famously noted that 19th and 20th century Western knowledge about the East could never have been empirical. Uh, it was always a product of European preconceptions and grounded in an imperialist discourse that sought to master, dominate the Orient. Recently, there has been a sustained scholarly endeavor um, to show that European understandings of the wider world had always depended on more or less symmetrical cultural exchanges, transfers, interactions. How do your findings and conclusions position useful enemies, the book, between these two historiographical or, or scholarly poles? Well, I think, I mean, you will have noticed that I don't agree with Said, and I make this point fairly briefly right at the end of the book. Um, I almost wondered, having got that far, should I just finish the book? I don't need to mention Said. People will see what my interpretation is. But then I thought he's such a, 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 a dominant figure in this field generally, it would be a little artificial not to mention. So I expressed my disagreement. My disagreement is not particularly based on that last point you made about you know, an alternative view involving symmetrical relations. It's based more on the fact that I think his interpretation is too narrow uh, and it's rather constraining and misses out a lot of things. Now, I, I emphasize that his famous book on Orientalism hardly deals with my period at all. You know, I end in the late 18th century. He starts more or less in 1800, Napoleon's expedition to Egypt. And his argument is mainly about the 19th and 20th centuries, when, of course, major European powers were colonial and imperial powers um, in many parts of the East, as, you know, as it was broadly called, but particularly some territories with Muslim populations. Um, and he makes some very valid points about how uh, the scholarship generated within those Western imperial powers was often organically connected with imperial programs, imperial interests, imperial mindsets. Um, that's fine, although people who talk about that period, which is not my period, have long made the point that he in order to make his argument work neatly, he has to ignore Germany altogether, which was not an imperial power over, certainly not over Muslim territories, got tiny bits, well, relatively small bits of Africa eventually in the so-called scramble for Africa. But really, Germany was just not an imperial power like, like uh, England or France. And an awful lot of serious uh, writing and scholarship on the East, including Islam, was done by Germans. And I'm afraid he just turned a blind eye to that. Still, come back to my period. He says very little. He says a few things, and one of them is just obviously wrong about a major French text uh, by Derbeleau, the Bibliothèque Orientale, major work written in the 1690s, a sort of encyclopedia of, of Islam and, and the Orient, and he just gets that wrong. But I wouldn't criticize him for that. My main criticism, and this arises from the fact that a lot of other later scholars deeply influenced by Said have applied his theory directly to my period in a way that he himself did not, um, that the influence of this has been, I think, rather negative. Yeah. You cannot sit down and say that this is all easy to explain in terms of the Western power's desire to dominate and rule these Eastern people, particularly Muslim people. You can't apply that to a period when they weren't actually dominating or ruling anyone They're uh, in the Muslim world, except for a you know, handful of people in Tangier when the English got it uh, briefly in the 17th century and, and, and so on. But really, that whole colonial period comes much later. Um, and we're in a much more symmetrical relationship in the Mediterranean area and parts of Europe where, you know, the imperial power is the Ottoman power. And 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 often it's, it's Western Europeans who are being captured by the Ottomans or their subordinates in the Mediterranean and taken off and sold into slavery. Um, so that's one reason why it just doesn't fit. But, but the whole point of my book, I hope, is to show that the ways in which people wrote about this, this so-called Oriental world, this, this Eastern, mainly Islamic world, the range of ways in which they wrote is multiple and various and served all kinds of different interests. And some of those interests, in well, in many cases, the interests were really 
directed into arguments against other Western positions. These are intra-European debates where they find useful ammunition on the Ottoman side and weave that into their arguments. As with those you know, slightly ridiculous arguments between Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century, but going much further than that into, well, or, or, or French people defending their own nobility against Louis XIV and invoking Ottoman despotism. I mean, all along the way, there are examples of people using these, these um, what, what information they had about the Ottomans for targeting the things that they were opposed to in their own society. Also, as I point out, you have writers in the West who say extremely positive things about the Ottomans, and indeed, uh, is another theme that we haven't really touched on, saying positive things about Islam as a religion. Uh, this gets going in the 17th century, and there are people in the 18th who are saying almost directly that um, Islam is obviously a better religion than Christianity. Now, they may be saying this in order to attack the things they don't like about Christianity in their own society. But these are rather extraordinary things, and you would not guess that people could be writing like that if you just followed this rather narrow Saidian doctrine about, about why people wrote about the East. So the clue is in the first word of, my, of the title of my book, Useful Enemies. There were all sorts of different uses that people could put these, these Ottoman enemies to in their own writings and in their arguments. And that's what I've tried... Uh, to emphasize all the way through the book. And so just finally, to come back to the, the very interesting point you raised about this new tendency to look for more symmetrical exchanges. I don't write a lot about this in the book. I mean, one can't write about everything, and it's already quite a long book, and it's about, as it says in the subtitle, it's about Western political thought, and that's my subject, and that's where I feel knowledgeable. It's actually quite difficult unless you're a real Ottomanist who can spend years or decades reading all sorts of manuscripts and indeed treatises that are still only available in manuscript written in Ottoman Turkish, which is written in the Arabic script and is, I'm told by real Ottomanists, always quite a nightmare to read. Um, those people might be able to do a properly symmetrical account of this. But where I find some striking examples of real knowledge being transferred from the East to the West in my story, I do draw attention to them. And I'll just give you one example. In that period at the end of the 16th century, this is the period of those Catholic reason of state theorists. It's a period of the development of the idea of Ottoman despotism. Um, all sorts of things are going on there. A German writer, uh, Hans Löwenklau, Leon Clavius in Latin, produces an enormous book on the history of the Ottomans, very detailed, with sort of year-by-year -year chronicles of what happened. And you read this, and you know, if you didn't know, you would really wonder, is he making all this detail up? Where did he get this from? You know, if he says that you know, then in the fourth year of Bayezid's reign, there was an expedition against Armenia, and, you know, how do they know? Are they just inventing facts? No. What this book is, substantially, is a translation of two bodies of Ottoman chronicles that he had got hold of. One was translated by a Hungarian um, sort of captive in Istanbul who had learnt Turkish so well he'd become a professional dragoman or a professional interpreter. And what you have here is a massive transfer of knowledge from literary Ottoman culture straight to Western culture, which then can distribute it more widely thanks to printing, which the West has in this period and, and the Ottomans don't. Um, that's just one example, and, and there are other examples, but I, I cannot say from the, the materials that I've studied that one can talk about a, a, a really symmetrical relationship, but there are always things going on in both directions. An excellent conclusion. Finally, will the book have influenced your future academic pursuits? Uh, what are you currently working on? Well, currently I am mainly going back to Hobbes, as I have to from time to time. <laughs> uh, there is a big um, new critical edition of the complete works of Hobbes. I say new, it's been going since, excuse me, since the 1980s, and I've been one of the general editors, it will come to, I think, 27 volumes in total, 
we distribute individual volumes to individual editors. I have done already for that edition two big volumes of Hobbes's correspondence, three quite big volumes of his most famous work, Leviathan. I have to do another volume, which will be shorter, but involve quite a lot of work, consisting mainly of his autobiographical writings, which are very interesting. And when I've done that, then my final Hobbesian task is to sit right down and write a, a, a big biography of Thomas Hobbes. Um, there have been some biographies in the last 30, 40 years um, by good writers who've written interesting things and have done some original research in the archives and so on. But I think over the years I've accumulated quite a lot of new material and I feel a sort of duty uh, eventually to put it all together. Uh, and biography, compared with this book, Useful Enemies, biography is a relatively easy genre to write in because you start with their birth and you end with their death. So the material broadly arranges itself. But to write the biography of a thinker and a writer is itself, you know, that brings in other complications because at certain points you have to launch into a much broader account of the influences on their thinking and then how far do you go just summarizing what they say in this book or that book. So um, I don't think it'll be an easy book to get right but I feel I have a sort of long-term duty to do it. Sir Noel, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for your systematic, substantive expositions and for joining New Books in Eastern European Studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.